Hi, I'm Mara Webster with Increative Company, and I'm so excited today to be joined by the wonderful Daniel Sloss to talk all about his newest comedy release, Socio. Um, and you actually recorded Socio a couple of years ago off, off the back of your shows Dark and Jigsaw and X. Um, and a lot of it was kind of a self-reflection, particularly coming off the back of, of touring X and everything that exploring that material night after night had meant to you. But also at the same time, it's it's a different structural form comedically to the other shows where with those they went to slightly more emotional and, and darker spaces and, and had this really strong overarching theme and topic to them. Um, and in, in taking this show on the road when you were touring it extensively in the development ahead of shooting it, how did that open up and change the space in which you were approaching comedically and through your writing? Because with the other shows, you really couldn't delineate from any of the material or change details night of the way that you sometimes can as you're touring um, and so did this give you a much more open space to to play around with and experiment with as well in creating it well it's it's uh socio was actually written like way back in i think 2016 because it was it, after i'd done dark and jigsaw at the fringe that was when i wrote Socio in response originally to uh, Jigsaw and its success, and then Netflix. Uh, it was uh, so that was always those. They were originally meant to be part of a trilogy. It was meant to be Dark, Jigsaw, and um, and and Socio, but Netflix didn't take Socio. So we we're like, oh, it's fine. You know, we'll just release it a couple of years later. They'll come uh, back, and they were like, but, but we'll just record it because I was just starting to do the X, and I've, I mean, my entire career, I've just had my back catalogue of material just behind me with like nowhere really to put it. Um, so I was desperate to get it filmed. So we filmed it like, I think after the Netflix success. Oh yeah, it definitely was because why else would anyone in Austin have ever have come to see me live? Uh, so it was after that, but before the X tour. So I, I only managed to like re-practice it or rehearse it like uh, five times in New York before we went to, so I hadn't done it for three years, came back to it, had grown a lot since then and changed because of all the other shows I'd done. Um, so, I mean, I don't know, man, I, th I, I think I did okay. I think I did, a well, no, I don't. I, but if I'm being 100% honest, I don't think I did good, but I'm my own worst uh, critic. I I fucking hate my stuff after afterwards. I can't watch it back or be objective at all because I'm so I know I know how it's done a one hundred percent because I've performed each of these jokes so many times. I know the best version of them, and audiences, you know, they just don't get that. Like I'll come off stage having done very well and having hated the show, and it's just because you know people go, but you did so well. I'm like, yeah, to you, but you saw you know that joke go the way it goes eighty percent of the time as opposed to the way it goes ten percent of the time, which is unbelievably um, so. Going back to it gave me a chance to sort of reflect on some of the material, but then I don't know how well I incorporated it. I feel like it, I feel like it went well. I feel like it was a success. In in terms of, of your writing and, and when you're trying out new material, there's something that I've I've heard you talk about, which is in essence that if you have a piece of material or you have a joke that isn't landing the way that you intended, that it's not something that's immediately stripped from the show, that you'll continue to put it out in front of audiences because you almost feel like it's it's not about the joke not being good or the content not being good. It's about you not landing it or contextualizing it in the right way. And so when you have those moments where you're not getting the response that you want from 
from an audience? Um, what does that look like as you go off stage and as you're coming into the next next night of a show, for example, and just thinking about how to take that same material and recalibrate it for yourself? Well, I normally give it like every everything is funny, right? That's everything is and can be funny. No matter how deep, deep or horrible or tragic something is, it can be funny. And it's all about the lens you look at it through. Now, some things are easy to make funny because they're just so big and you can look at them from several angles and they're always mm -hmm. funny. And then some things really require one fucking specific angle for you to see the sunny side. It's like those statues, how when like, you know, they look like nothing and then you turn around and then from one specific angle, it's like a lion roaring or some shit. And then you continue rotating around and it's nothing. Some dark material and dark jokes are like that. You have to come at it from a very... Um, specific angle and so when people are doing jokes that are like people find offensive i'm like the topic's not awful you're just you're hitting the wrong side it's coming in at the wrong angle so i normally give it like three times of the same iteration because i don't know i always heard on the circuit growing up uh, in stand-up that is being like oh you should never bl blame the audience which is so wrong it's so the audience is regularly and consistently fucking wrong. It's a collection of random people who have turned up. They in no way do they know more about comedy than anyone standing on stage doing it. It's insane. It's no there. There is no the customer is always right. The comedian is always correct. It's just you know sometimes you go right. This is funny and I know it's funny. I just cannot make them laugh at it because they're not seeing it in the way I'm seeing it, and that's because I'm not conveying it in the way that it's making it palatable and making it softer. Now, some comedians like, you know, Anthony Jeselnik are very good at just making you look at it through a fucked up lens and still laughing at it anyway. But I much prefer to, you know, I I like to make people feel a bit dirty laughing at stuff. And then I like to give them a little wash afterwards. It's not just let's cover them in muck. It's like, hey, it's OK. You know, we made a little mess. Right. You're, you're really, really great at creating this self-reflectiveness back on the audience and really challenging them in their responses to things. You know, I remember, you know, when, when you were talking about your sister who had had cerebral palsy and the first time that you mention it, there's, there's this air that kind of dissipates in the room and then you challenge them on, you know, your response isn't what has been asked for. And actually it's problematic in the way that you're responding. And then you completely flip it back. And there's so many instances in all of your material where you find those ways to do it. Is, is there a consciousness in terms of thinking not just about the material that you're creating on stage, but the way in which you really want to allow the audience to go against the grain of their initial instincts and their initial thoughts on a lot of cases. Yeah, man. Like, like well, in two parts, like sometimes comedy, sometimes it's funny to justify the unjustifiable, yeah. right? And there's just so there's something artistic about here's this thing that we can all disagree is fucking horrendous. But I'm going to I'm going to pitch it in a very specific way. And if we follow these only these key bits of information, I can actually make this horrific thing look good. That's, you know, that's funny. And I think it's important to try and remind people of that, you know, of we can laugh at everything. And if by laughing at things, they no longer have power over us. And the second time, man, sometimes it's just like fucking with the audience, man. Like it's it's there's this there's. Sometimes I feel like audiences think they have the power, which in a way they do, because if they don't respond, then a performer is not a performer. A comedian is not a If they're not laughing, a comedian is not a comedian. It's a very easy definition. So in their head, I think sometimes because there's more of them, they're like, oh, you know, we're in charge. They're not in fucking charge. Like, like it's 
I am in charge of your emotions. You're in charge of my emotions after the show. You're in charge of how often I, how much I drink. Like if I hate this show, I'll drink heaps and I'll go and, you know, whine and moan about it and drink, you know, smoke a bunch of weed and be sad for a bit. But I, while we're in this room, I am in charge of your emotions because you've let me, because you trust me. And if you want what the, the, the highest proof of trust is, you're all paying to look in this direction. Like you trust me enough and I can, you know, build uh and, and, and making people uncomfortable, I think, especially when I was growing up and watching stand-up so much, the difference between watching it, like when I was watching on VHS and watching it live in the room, was I remember when comedians would do bits that would completely, like, change my mind on something or make me think. And, like, I was so used to just watching amazing comedians like Lee Evans, right? And you'd watch him do two hours and you'd cry laughing and your ribs would hurt. And then afterwards, my friends would be like, oh, well, so what were his jokes? And, I'm, and I could, couldn't repeat any of them. I couldn't remember. I just remember laughing lots. But whenever I'd go see uh, Jim Jeffries and he was doing, you know, uh, stuff where he's making feel, people feel uncomfortable, similar about disability and, and, and how people react to it. I remember being in the audience going, oh my, like, this is, this is good. Like this. And you could, I could remember every bit of it. I could remember the points he made because he led me down this um, path. And I, I think, you know, I think I, I, I I don't think it's your responsibility to change the audience's mind, but I think if they're giving you this much power, yeah. why not abuse it? <laughs> and and speaking of audiences in in socio, there, there's a moment during the taping where you were filming this in Austin, Texas, and you had a neo-Nazi heckler in the middle of the show, and yeah. watching your I'm response, on- I'm not sure if he is a neo-Nazi. Like I, because I, because everyone in the room's convinced he's a neo-Nazi. Like my management, my everyone, all my friends are like he's a neo-Nazi. I'm like. I don't know, man. So maybe it was maybe it was just maybe it was a mistimed joke. You know, he does sound, you know, he does shout we love Trump, the the fourth rank will rise or whatever it was. And in the and because that was obviously such a like, oh my god moment, like I didn't really have time to deconstruct it or work out whether it was, you know, true. People say weird things. Maybe that was, you know, I mean he was escorted out and he did leave, which does lead me to believe that maybe he was more of a neo-Nazi. But why in what world are you coming to my show? Like, I just, I just, I, you know, I mean, I talk about it in the show, but I just can't get my head around being a neo-Nazi and liking my bleeding heart liberal propaganda. <laughs> no, you're, you're absolutely right. And he, you know, the fact that he paid for paid for a ticket to come as Madness. well. But... <laughs> yeah. Like, as if he just took a fucking gamble on just yeah. like, and, and for a neo-Nazi to take a gamble on a fucking foreigner. I mean, maybe he knew nothing about me. Maybe he knew absolutely nothing. Um, but also maybe he was just a drunk idiot who was like, okay, I'm going to be trying to get a reaction, trying to get a rise. I don't know. Yeah. You know, and we get to kind of almost see like you, you, you take like a, a slight pause and, and it feels like there, there's a second of like recalibration and okay, how am I going to respond to it after you first retorted to him? And that's not making it go away. That's not making it quieten down. Um, you know, and the first thing that you, you kind of joke about in, in kind of breaking the tension for the audience after he's being escorted out is, you know, of course, none of that's going to make it into the special, but then actually there's this added context to certain jokes that you're making throughout the show that come from that moment having existed. Um, and so I was interested in, in what led to the decision to eventually keep it on when you'll f- keep it in the special and keep it in the recording when the first first instinct was like oh none of that's making it in oh man i did i did not want it in and i do not want it in the show but i lost a vote essentially i i think it's all i i if it was up to me it wouldn't be yeah. in the show um like i i really really meant it but i've been outvoted because again because i cannot yeah. judge my work objectively but myself I, i'm i'm incapable of it um 
people that I trust and people that know me that have watched it are like, it's, you know, my family and friends are like, it's excellent, you have to give in. I, I hate it. I fucking hate that it's in the show because I don't like not being in control. And although I do get, although, I, you know, it may look like I was in control, didn't feel like it at the time. Like my brain, you know, when you're on stage, your brain's already going quite fast. And and this is this is the difference between me and the audience. And this is why I can't watch myself back because they'll, you know, you might see me confidently handling it, deal with it. I don't, man. I see the fear in my eyes. I see the I see the stutters. I when I'm watching it back, I know what I should have said in each moment. I know how I should have reacted better. I know where I should have looked in the audience to calm this side down more. There's so much I know that I didn't fucking do. Like I got away with it. And that's the way I see it. Because again, I've done this so many times. I know what I'm capable of. I think it's actually a very poor representation of what I'm capable of on stage. But again, I'm a bad judge of that. And I've been outvoted. And, and in going back a little bit in, in talking about when you first started doing stand-up, because you've been, I mean, you've been out on the circuit and doing stand-up and, and live shows since you were a teenager. And so have so much extensive experience. And even just, you know, when you're touring, you're often doing not even just one show in a night, you'll be doing back-to-back shows throughout the evening. Um, and, and you've talked a little bit in the past about how when you first started doing stand-up comedy, that it almost at times felt like you were doing an impression of Ed Byrne or Bill Burr or aspects of Richard Pryor that you could see in your material. Um, and, and, particularly going through an experience where you were doing televised stuff on the BBC, but not really able to express yourself in the way that you wanted. What, what was that, that shift in navigation towards finding a lot more of your own specific voice within comedy where it wasn't going out there and doing impressions of comics, or it wasn't being in a space where you were being edited for something that needed to be televised in a certain way. And did, did that editing that was happening to you kind of make you realize a lot of what you wanted to be able to communicate? Um, it happened around. I can't remember the name. I can't remember the name of the show, but I do think the name of the show was Daniel Sloss. The show. It was my fourth or fifth fringe show. Before that, like I'd done like Mike and McIntyre's Comedy Road Show and like the Paul O'Grady Show, and that was all cheeky chappy, like pre-watershed, not too much swearing, if at all, and it's you know mainly like tongue-in-cheek sex stories, and no pun intended, um, like you know, designed to just sort of like, you know, be gentle, but still a bit like rude teenage lad. And then people come see me. And I mean, all of my favorite comedians that I grew watching up were, you know, like I said, Bill Barr, Ed Barn, uh, Bill Hicks, George Carlin. And they all swore and they all said awful things. And it was also very cool. And I wanted to do that. So I felt like I, I'd misrepresented myself on television because it was during that show where I was doing like anti-God, well, not anti-God stuff, just I don't believe in God. And I think people who believe in God are stupid. And also I think drugs are great. And also I'm a legend and all this fucking ego shit who is, you know, especially at the time was closer to the real me. It was so different to the version I'd sold on stage. Every day I had to, during that fringe show at the EICC, it was a 350 seat room. And every day I watched minimum 30 people walk out at a time. Like, because they'd seen me on TV being like, oh, isn't it weird when you're living at home and your mum says, oh, clean up your socks and you don't want to clean up your socks. That shit compared to, you know, and then I was fucking this lady. And I think if you believe in God, you're a fucking moron. Get it, Rudges, whatever that angry shit was. It was uh, the people that were leaving. I was like, they have to leave. Of course they should leave. This isn't for them. It will never be for them. I'm not growing now into a comedian that they're going to enjoy. But there's always this desperate fucking neediness in all comedians, which is, man, I know I have the ability to make those people laugh. 
Like if I wanted to win those people, those 30 people leaving, I could have kept every one of them in. I could have swore less. I could have gone back to like family friendly or stuff, but I would have, I knew right then I was like, uh, even though they're leaving, I love that they're leaving. I think that's like, it's, you know, if, you know, they'll ask for refunds. They've got a right to yell at me. They're going to be sad. This isn't for them. But also, law, 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 law. I don't know your fucking name. Like, I, I, didn't, I, didn't, I didn't come out to specifically offend you. These are just my thoughts, and you're allowing my thoughts to make you so angry that you storm out. How, how, I always find it funny with people who get offended by comedy. I'm like, why despite oh you shouldn't be offended or people are weak-willed whatever to these people i'm always just like why are you letting these people know that they are in your fucking head like if something offends me i keep it to myself that's a weakness man bury it down don't let it but these people they get they're like my feelings are hurt you're like don't make it fun don't make it fun for they don't let them know it's working you idiots have you never met a bully before <laughs> i i also love love the detail of when you first started wanting to pursue stand-up comedy, that there was such supportiveness from your parents to the point where, you know, you talk about it in the current show that you've been touring, your mom literally was like, okay, well, like you have a full work day of writing to do. And as she would be working, she set up a desk opposite for you to work on your material. Because obviously, you know, everybody sees the, the filmed specials and they see the shows that they go to, but there's so much that goes in on the back end and so much time in terms of writing and developing and continuing to evolve material as you're touring it. And so what is, what is it that that instilled in you, even just when you first started going out doing shows when you were 16, 17, 18? I mean, it definitely instilled a work ethic in me when I was young because I did write material all the time then. And then as was, was with common with everything in my life, like if I enjoy something, uh, I'll be very good at it. Like the subjects I passed in high school, there was only like four of them, but the ones I passed were ones I just really enjoyed. I loved history, so I just paid attention in history. Same with English, I paid attention in English. Um, I can't remember what the other two were, probably losery ones. Um, but I wasn't interested in math, and nothing you could do could make me interested in math, and that's why I failed all the science fucking subjects. But if I like something, I'll do it. To And then, and I didn't have to revise for the subjects I enjoyed, because I just, I paid attention and I retained it. Stand-up comedy kind of became like that a bit. My mum would make me write, and it would get me into this, you know, I would understand how to craft jokes more and how to make them work. And then I would do them on stage and I'd, it would become closer to my voice than, you know, how I used to write down physically. Jokes would be very different to how it, you should say things out loud and how it worked in stand-up. And then it kind of just became a bit more like natural over time. Um, and when I left home and when I was enjoying being a 20-something, you know, Z-less celebrity living by himself for the first time in a house that he bought with his money that he makes from his job and he thinks he's the coolest guy in the world. God, I lost my fucking work ethic, man. Or And it kills me because, like, man, if I if I really put effort into, like, I believe that if I were able to somehow commit myself to writing, like, two hours a day on the fucking show, I could make something unbelievably good. But I just don't because the show's good now and the audience is laughing and I much enjoy just being free on stage. But I constantly, I'm like, man, if you just, if you just committed one hour a fucking day, you could improve this show so much. And I'm just like, yeah, but I'm not gonna, I'm gonna go make my son laugh and I'm gonna go for a walk and I'm gonna go, you know, watch TV or whatever. Um, I feel like moving out has because people think I have a good work ethic because I travel because I tour a lot but tourism work it's just it's annoying like it's work in the sense that I have to physically move my body around but it's not it doesn't take fucking like effort 
it's not like a nine to five, which sucks the joy out of you. I'm not, you know, in the time I'm traveling, I'm not desperately writing away. I'm not worrying about the show. I'm just existing on my phone, playing games, watching fucking TV. And then I go on stage. So it's, you know, I don't consider it to be hard work. I think nowadays I'm very, very lazy. But if you were to ask anyone around me, they, they'd be like, no, but you work so... I'm like, I, I fucking don't, man. Like, for, I don't, I really don't. It's... it's uh, so I guess what I'm saying is I wish I lived with my mum still. I, I can't imagine how good a comic I'd be if my mum was still there to wake me up every morning and force me to write with her. And and when you're creating material, you know, it's it's kind of starting with certain details and certain pieces and then finding how it's all going to interlace together into the wider context of, of whatever tone you end up finding for a show, whatever theme. And, you know, if we if we look at Jigsaw, even just the, the most infamous part of it being that idea of if you're in a relationship that nothing's terribly wrong, but also nothing's great. Maybe it's just easier if the other person dies because that's the easiest way out. And it sounds like that was something that started as an idea that had been percolating in your head of, you know, what if I say the worst thing inside my head out loud in front of a room full of people? And then when you got the reaction that you were hoping for, that that really spurned a lot more material around it. And so what it, what is your journey of, of having those little inklings, taking those little minute moments or those little observations, and then seeing the way that there's a ripple effect that you can start to build a much wider narrative arc of a show around it. Well, it's good. It's good. It's good. I'm good in the sense that like there's, there are moments where you think something's so funny, but you, you know, it's fucked, you know, it's fucked because it was the first thing that came into your head. So there was zero filter. There was no morals. There was no nothing. There was no empathy. It was just something tragic and awful happened. And this was the first thing my brain said afterwards. It's to, to be able to then go and stage and get the laugh from the audience is first of all it makes you feel fucking less lonely, right? Because you you know when you when we all laugh at these fucked up things in our head and we have these awful thoughts of you know the intrusive walking across a bridge and your brain goes throw your phone in there like the intrusive thoughts that we get that everyone has knowing through the release of laughter that you are not the only person that occasionally has a psychopath living up there is a very, very freeing thing for people. And I think like, I think people, when they laugh at those jokes as well as an audience, they're not laughing at the joke well, or just the joke. They're laughing at how many other people are laughing with them because it's immediately like, oh, because that man, the first time I do those jokes, I also end up laughing because it's released. Mm-hmm. And what's fucked is sometimes there's times you go on stage and you're like, here's an awful thought I had. And the entire audience goes, oh man, no, no, like none of us. <laughs> and those are the ones where I'm like, okay, I'm going to have to give, I'll give it two more goes from that direction. And then I'll have to see if I can find a different angle and I'll try and find different angles. I'm, I'll maybe try a joke five or six times before I go revisit it in three years come back when you're a better comedian like you just don't have the ability right now it's like you have to unlock it at a higher level there's there's also a a lot of instances of essentially taking what's a seem seemingly innocuous observation about something and and turning it into a larger scope of material and you know with with socio the way that you take the idea of People who have pulp in their orange juice are absolute psychopaths. And you turn that into this several minute segment, you flip it onto the audience, you know, you engage with them and and make them feel completely wrong. If that's how they have it, you know, why would you? They are are wrong. Like none of that is an act. Like it's like like comedy subjective. But what I'm saying in that act is objective fucking truth. Like I oh, wholeheartedly I, agree. <laughs> yeah, I think I think it's reprehensibly disgusting and says so much about your character to have 
yourself and your audiences. That's why it's in the show. It's not because I thought it was funny. Because yeah. sometimes when, you know, when I'm with friends, I mean, in the, in the way we're conversing now, I, I, if somebody gets me on something that I'm passionate about, I yeah. just rant. That's who I am. It's exhausting for people who love me. Um, because, you know, my poor fiance, she'll just say something and then I'll stumble across an opinion in my head that I didn't know I had before. Right. And the comedian in me is, first of all, loving that I'm, you know, coming up with I'm like, oh, this could be a joke. So I might as well keep going with it. And then also the the partner in me is I'm so happy to be making the, you know, the love of my life laugh at this fucking joke and that. But I don't know that I have those opinions until somebody hands me a glass of orange juice pulp and it doesn't fucking tell me it's got pulp in it. And then I'll go on stage that night genuinely angry. And because I because I'm so desperate to be right all the time, which comes from my father's comes from my father that's him in a nutshell he has to be right and that's in his defense because he normally is uh i very from a very young age worked out that you it's very hard to argue somebody around to your way of thinking but you can laugh people around to your way of thinking pretty fucking quickly like if they can laugh at your perspective they're already on your side because they feel safe because they're laughing in your company like so that's it's um yeah, and also I, it's very funny. To, it's always comical to get angry over something just so, which, which seems like so small to someone else. I think you know uh, some of the best comedy in the world is just overreacting to the small minor things. But again, I I stand by that it's disgusting. Yeah, and and that's also an instance of you creating a, a payback later in the show. You know, it, it seems like you have that rant, and that's the moment, and then you move on to other material, and then that actually comes back in the culmination of the show at the end is, is kind of the final punchline on something. Um, and so how do you start to feel out the essence of as I'm writing this material, as I'm developing this material, what are what are the callbacks that I want to make to earlier things that if people have been paying attention to certain details, you know, it's almost like you get the double joke because you're laughing at the thing that you're saying in the instance and then you're laughing at remembering the experience of, of the joke the first time around as well. Yeah, I mean, I, it wasn't intentional. I'm pretty sure like when I was doing that socio at the Fringe, I'm pretty sure for at least three weeks of it, it didn't have that fucking punchline on the end. It was just, it was literally just a rant of me murdering people. Um, and then there's something so very weird about stand-up comedy in which you can do a joke 20, 30 times, um, you know, not, not exactly in the same way, but similar way, finding the cadence of it, finding the rhythm, finding the best way through the joke to then eventually like, in later iterations of it, veer off in different directions, knowing that you've got the safety line to come back to. It's uh, sometimes on that 31st performance, your brain will just go, oh, by the way, this this fits there. And it's the weirdest thing. And I think it's when you've done the joke so many times that your brain begins to wander and your subconscious, when you're not focused on, fuck, what's the next bit? Oh, what have we got to say here? Your subconscious is allowed to wander and it just goes, oh, by the way, as somebody who's not so focused literally on this performance in this exact moment, and I'm able to look at the thing as an objective whole now, I can tell you these bits fit together. And also listening to it back, because again, I hate myself so much. And, and whenever I listen back, I watch it like a, I, try, I watch it like my worst, an audience member who hates me. I'm like, I'm trying to protect everything I'm going to say. And I'm trying to, uh, you know, make sure I'm going in directions that that's going to be surprising to people. And you were touching upon earlier as well, the idea of building tension. And, and it's something where you're not even necessarily building tension with the material. You're also at times building tension because you're not afraid to call the audience out on certain things. You know, again, it's like, 
I, I've seen you do shows in the States and you you will walk into a room and be like, isn't it crazy that America's doing this? You know, isn't it absolutely ridiculous that this country exists in this way? Um, you know, and then you find the way to break the tension and allow the air back into the room whenever you're doing that intentionally. And and so how how do you find those calibrations of where you want to be able to create that tension, where you want to, you know, walk out and almost insult the audience, but then where you're going to flip it around, turn it back and 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 bring them back into the fold with you in different ways? Um, I, I think it depends on a bunch of stuff. I think, you know, it depends on how bored I am. Like, if it depends on, like, how far in the tour I am. If I'm at a place where, you know, I'm so confident in the show that, you know, sometimes you want to make it harder for yourself. Sometimes you get to a point when you're touring where you're like, okay, I, I, I think I've approached this joke from every angle. I think I've found the best way to perform it. What can make this more difficult to be? Okay, I'll be more antagonistic. I'll, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll take the twinkle out my eye and I'll just be a bit of a bastard or maybe I'll go on half drunk. Maybe I'll go on and I'll, 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 I'll switch the order of the show so that this callback's gone. So fuck, what do I do? Um, what do I do when that's all gone? Uh, oh, I've done it. I've done it. I fucking warned you before that I would do this. I'd ramble so much that I forget what the initial question was. Um, it's about how you kind of navigate where, where and how you want to build the tension and then how you want to create those moments where you're, you're bursting that. Yeah. Um, well, I think sometimes, and also the audience lets me know. Like, I, even though the comedian is like the the conductor of the orchestra, it's, it's it's a bad analogy because they are, you know, you've got to, you've got to react to what they are doing as well. Like, you can lead them in ways, but if they specifically laugh something more at something more, it's well worth your time to stay there and then explore that bit more because I can expand that joke. And then also if one audience gets offended or particularly tense, go, no, no, hold on, right? Well, what has happened here? Because you're wrong, because of course you are. Because one, you just are, and two, also the performance of the show is I'm right and you are wrong. And it's got to be so. Um, and then it's working out. Because again, I, I mean, I've, I've, I'm repeating myself, I've definitely said this heaps of times before, but I have no problem offending people. I have no problem offending people I hate. I love, if there's people I dislike and I've hurt their feelings, brilliant, excellent. I'm, I, groups of people that I hate and my comedy upsets them makes me so very, very happy. Again, why would you ever tell me that the things I say upset you, it brings me such joy. But I do not like accidentally offending people. Like I hate when something I say because of my own ignorance in the subject or because of the way I've phrased it or uh, because I'm out of the loop and I'm out of touch. I've said something that's just basically an ignorance that has accidentally, you know, it is wrong and isn't wrong in like a funny way. It's just objectively wrong. And I've accidentally, you know, besmirched the names of these people or fucked this group of people off. In those moments, I, that's again, while I'll always go into the tension to be like, okay, because I don't want I don't want this to happen again. I want to be in control of the emotions all the time. So if I know where that tension came from, I know how to not let it happen again. But I also know how to then make it happen again. Because if the audience is annoying me, I know I can throw in this thing that I know upsets them. And then I, you know, backwards explain myself out of it so that, you know, if you just, if you just try and sound smarter than they are, most of the time they'll believe you. It's all, it's all an illusion. It's all an illusion. And and with your relationship with, with touring, when, when you took X on the road, I think that might've even been the most number of performances that you've done for, for one of your shows as well. And, and obviously with, with the subject matter and, and the material, you know, you, you've talked in reflection about how that was an incredibly difficult experience to be touring that night after night and making sure that you were still 
elevating everything that you were saying, giving the delivery that you needed and taking the audience emotionally to the space that you did within that show. And so what has been the the difference or recalibration of your relationship with touring since doing a show like that, that had such like a, vit- a vital importance, but such a weight for you as a performer into kind of reopening your space, yourself into a space of, of a kind of just pure joyfulness and going back to some of the elements that that connected you to comedy when you first started out a little bit more again well yeah I mean, I mean to be honest what I'm learning the older I get is and and it's I, th- I think a lot of 30 year olds go through this or I think this is maybe just what a lot of adults go through as they grow up which is uh the older you get just sort of laughing at how seriously you used to fucking take yourself like like it's, in my 20s like that I'm, I'm proud of the shows I did I won't be able to watch them back but I'm you know I'm proud of you know what X turned into and I'm proud of you know I'm definitely proud of the breakups the jigsaw caused um but uh, I accidentally or at least the way it appeared it appeared that I was doing like tragedy stories in a row or like the for three specials in a row to people because what they saw was dark jigsaw then x they saw comedy 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 sad bit comedy and those three shows weren't in a row originally you know dark was written in 2013 jigsaw came after that then there was socio in between and then it was x but socio wasn't released so i think from the outside i felt like people just saw me as this and then there was this pressure on me to be like oh fuck and now I have to do another show where it is as deep and as meaningful and there has to be this twist at the end and I have to shock people because I have to keep improving because if I don't get better at this job then I'm stagnant and if I'm stagnant I'll die um because then I'll have time to self-reflect and I cannot do that so I have to it just has to be getting better and better and better and then and then I just saw how exhausted I was getting. I was like, man, I can't. What? What's also realistically, what tragedy is worse than you've done it? You've done death and you've done sexual assault. Like, unless unless genocide happens to me, like I don't think I'll be able to do a show about this big, you know, in a way anymore. So that's what my, you know, the tour before this was hubris. I called it hubris because it was just me doing dumb, stupid stand up again, and. Um, it was that was it was fun. I liked it, but again, it was another process similar to when I was doing that fringe and audience members were walking out. Uh similar to this, people were like, Oh, I preferred when you did that. I'm like, oh man, cool. I you know, I might do that again, but I'm not, I'm not just going to I am not the guy who I'm not like John Oliver. I'm not gonna be like, right, this is the subject I'm taking down now. I've decided I'm the voice of reason on everything, so I'm gonna take down this, I'm gonna take down this if that ever appeared to be the way I was, it was just the fact that I did a show about death and then I did, and then I got out of, of a toxic relationship and then I wrote a show about that. And then I got bored and I wrote a show about being a sociopath, but that didn't come out and people didn't see it. So the next thing they saw was a show about sexual assault because that thing had recently happened to me. Um, so, I mean, I'm not, I'm not ruling it out. Like my, the worst thing about being a comedian is any time a tragedy happens, your brain does just weigh up being like oh oh could could this be like i'm terrified of the day my mom and dad die i love my mom and dad so much very very old. i love my parents so much but i'll have some good fucking jokes when they do though like it'd be a good show <laughs> it'd be a good show and your brain thinks that and you go no no that's not good that can't be the way well, I'm so glad that, that people are finally getting the chance to see Socio with, with the release God, of it through your website. Too. Me yeah. too, man. It's been a <laughs> long time to get this out. And then I think I think like hopefully by halfway through next year, 
I think my entire back catalogue will be out for the first time in my career. And I think I'll just go, ah, and then I'll just disappear into little motes of dust and just settle into the earth and no longer exist. That's that's amazing. Well, I so appreciate you taking the time to talk about all of this today. Oh, no. It's been such a pleasure, Daniel. Thank you so much. Thank you very much for having me.